Okay, so uh, good afternoon and uh, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are. Uh, so happy to be uh, learning together with you this Elul here at Drisha. Uh, uh, today's class is Ripples of Repentance, uh, Spiritual Dimensions of Tashlich with Rav Matthew. Uh, Nitzanim. And uh, just uh, if you're joining us now, uh, look out for an invitation to become a panelist for me. That would allow you to uh, show us your lovely uh, face if you wish. Uh, okay, if not as well, uh, it would uh, most importantly allow you to unmute yourself um, when uh, questions are invited. Um, please stay muted when you're not actively speaking. I will help mute you and just be sure to press unmute when you're ready to speak again. Uh, you can also participate uh, here uh, on the chat um, on uh, Zoom. Uh, and with that, I'll turn this to you, uh, Rav Matthew. Amazing. Thank you so much, Evie. Uh, thank you to all, to everyone who's here with us again uh, to uh, continue our journey through uh, through the tradition of Tashlich um, as we get ourselves ready for the high holidays. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is really, really soon um, here in Jerusalem. Uh, we're uh, already within the 24-hour mark, and so we're um, we're really coming close uh, to this really special time of year. And with that is also traditionally the observance of Tashlich. Um, and when we spoke last, we had the opportunity to look at the the text from the Nuvi'im, from the Tanakh, uh, taken from the Book of Micha, which sort of forms the the core of the tradition of Tashlich. Um, these psukim that talk about how God uh, casts our sins into the sea, the Tashlich. Uh, and we explored last time uh, what what the implications are of the language used in this psukim um, regarding the casting of sins. Um, what implications that have that, that has for how Tanakh more broadly thinks about sin. Uh, we explored the term avon or avon and had the opportunity to see how the go-to biblical metaphor of sin is a, a burden that has to be sort of carried. Um, as opposed to in rabbinic literature, where there's an, a different metaphor, um, a monetary metaphor, the notion of sin as a debt. Um, and that's played out in the language differently and has different ramifications for how we think about sin. And so that was really our focus last time. Of how can we think about what Tashlich means about our conception of sin? Um, where Tashlich, um, this ritual fits into a particular metaphor, namely a biblical metaphor, rather than a rabbinic metaphor, of what sin is like. Um, and it really opens up questions for us of, how do our rituals, how does our liturgy, how does our thinking, how does our theology talk about sin? Because the way that we talk about sin tells us something about what we're going to say about it. Um, the language that we use in, in, in influences and shapes the ideas that we work with. Now, we're jumping ahead. Next week, in our third session, we'll talk about the actual origins of the tradition of Tashlich, but we're going a little bit out of order uh, because... Before we get to Rosh Hashanah, when many people observe Tashlich, I really want to get to the, the, the later part of the story, which is how some later rabbinic thinkers uh, have engaged with this tradition of Tashlich, which, as we noted last time, is it's an unusual ritual. Now, there's something a little bit uncomfortable, theologically awkward about Tashlich, where it feels like we can get away with sinning by just, you know, uh, dropping the crumbs, the breadcrumbs into the water. And so... Um, there's a, a rabbinic voice that's uncomfortable with this ritual and tries to find other ways to look at it. Next week, we'll try to figure out what really are the origins of Tashlich, um, which actually ties really nicely to preparing for Yom Kippur. So that'll be good for next week. But for now, our goal for today is to look at how Tashlich has been reimagined in later rabbinic writing. Um, 
not all not all rabbinic thinkers have been comfortable with this idea that we go once a year, we take our sins in the form of breadcrumbs, drop it in the water, and kind of say it's okay. And because of that, there have been various attempts to try to reframe Tashlik. Tashlik is a great example of how a ritual, a part of our Jewish life and heritage, has been reframed, reoriented um, by sort of holding on to the same kernel, but uh, in introducing new ideas, new ways of thinking. Um, and, and, and that's a that's something which exists perhaps throughout our Judaism, or maybe can exist throughout our Judaism, um, our Jewish practice. So Tasha is a great example of this. And so what I want to look at today is these various attempts to see Tasha as anything but taking our sins and dropping them in the water. And so what we're going to look at today is um, about four possibilities uh, of what Tashlik can be. And in particular, what we're going to focus on today is rabbinic thinkers who have engaged with Tashlik and try to find what might the meaning of Tashlik, what might the meaning of the ritual be in the absence of the bread part. Or we're going to take the part where you take these crumbs and throw them in the water, and we're going to nix that. It's a good question why exactly that that's the part that uh, gets pushed out of the way. There's a There might be some technical halakhic concerns about throwing bread into the water um, on Yom Tov, um, as, we'll, uh, as we'll address next week. But there's also something, as we said, theologically challenging. That's probably what's sort of uh, uh, underlying the rabbinic discomfort. And so there are these various attempts to reframe Tashlich as a water prayer. What we're doing on Rosh Hashanah when we say Tashlich is we're saying a prayer by the water. And so what we're going to look at today is uh, these various perspectives on what it means to be praying by the water, what, what significance that might have. So before we even get into sources, uh, for those of us who are with us um, and who uh, are in a position to uh, unmute uh, yourselves, if you're so inclined, um, curious to hear if you're willing to share, um, what, what does it mean for you when you go to the water? I remember for myself, um, you know, being a kid, uh, going uh, going to the beach um, with family, standing by the ocean, um, times when I've gone hiking, you know, walked, you know, by rivers, gone through creeks, um, these various places where we interact with these uh, these bodies of water, um, you know, the vast ocean or the the running stream. What what kind of thoughts or experiences or or emotions does that evoke for you? What what sort of meaning do you find, if if any? When you're by the water, what does it get you to think about? Okay, I'll say something. Um, so I think there's a big difference between water that is running water. So whether it is a river or the sea, which I think the sound of the water has an effect and it's very calming, etc. Um, and that's very different from a lake or a swimming pool where the water stands still. And and I do think that the tashlich idea actually i feel it makes a big difference if i am in a canal that is self-contained a lake or if i'm close to a river that is flowing thank you sandra yeah there's um there's interesting discussion right as 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 we'll see as we go along there are these various again as we said various framings of how different thinkers look at uh interpret Tashlich, and in turn that has implications for what kind of body of water is preferred whether you ought to go to the ocean, do you have to go to running water? Um, uh, here in Jerusalem, um, there aren't too many bodies of water nearby. 
And um, there's a there's a shul, there's a synagogue across the street from where I live where they just fill a bucket with water and they say Tasha you know, uh, at the bucket. Um, there's a, I guess that's just what you need in an urban setting when you live on a mountain. But right, the, that question of what what is the meaning of Tasha will also be related to what kind of body of water we're looking for. And we'll see how that plays out um, as we go ahead. If anyone else wants to share their experiences by the water. I think the, the water represents something eternal and immeasurable and constant in Mirzashem and something that I find very humbling. Hmm. You know, amazing, the waves, amazing. if there are waves, then the waves can crash down. If it's water, you know, they say you never stand in the same water twice. Hmm. That there's this continuity feeling to it. I love that you you open with these two terms, eternal and immeasurable. And those those each of those brings out something in us. Um, immeasurable, right? If we, if we want to feel humble at this moment of Rosh Hashanah, the start of a new year, just to feel how small we are in the vastness of the world. Um, when we're thinking about the world as a whole, um, something about that is very fitting. Um, and also something about the, the eternality, the Rosh Hashanah is a time when we feel the passage of time. Um, maybe we're even sort of connecting back with creation itself. Um, some sense that time is going on and we're just one, we're just one episode in a long, in a long uh, TV series or uh, however you frame the, the passage of, you know, human history. Um, and that's, um, that's also something to hold on to during Rosh Hashanah, for sure. You just sparked the idea that one of the first things that we say, you know, there was Mayim, that that's somehow before time. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's something about the, the water which may be carrying us to creation, which will be very fitting for Rosh Hashanah. Right? Traditionally, we say that Rosh Hashanah is a zikaron um, is the it, it's meant to uh, evoke the memory of the beginning of time. Hayom harat olam. Today is the day when the when the world was born. Rosh Hashanah is connected with creation, and so it's very fitting about feeling connected with the the that which was created, the world, and trying to connect back with the moment of creation. At, at the risk of speaking up too much, but the water no, reminds me also water has to do with birth. You know, your water breaks, and and we discussed Kriyat Yamsuf as the birth of Am Yisrael. Also, they passed through the water. So water has yeah, that. interesting. Yeah. I think um, there's more language in um, in midrashic um, uh, writing about um, the splitting of the sea being connected with with uh, childbirth, and that we see that imagery come up, you know, around Pesach time. Um, but it does seem fitting, right? There something about there there maybe is a birthing that's happening here. There's actually um, where I think we see that more is in um, discussion of um, of immersing in a mikvah, also a holiday a tradition in some communities. Um, the mission of attempting to rebirth ourselves, but there's no re particular reason to think that maybe that's not part of what's in the background of Tashtich as well. Something about going to the well, water. Well, we say Hayom um, Harat Olam. Right, right. Getting connected with creation on in the grand scale and even with our own creation. There's a sense that we all kind of emerge from the water. Amazing. So all of these ideas and some more, we're going to see it inside some of the text, um, and uh, and hopefully we'll be able to explore together again some of these possible frames of what it means to take this moment, the, the, this, the sacred start of the year of Rosh Hashanah, why, 
why might we why why might we be drawn to the water to pray? You know, um, you also travel along water, and mm. that's what life should be. You should be traveling and moving, and always with a goal, and the idea of increased, uh, you know, I'll say spirituality, but um, the you travel, you travel along the water. I love that waters. Um... I, th I think for many of us, we don't really associate water with travel as much as um, some of our ancestors did, because most of us travel um, either by land or in the air. Um, few of us make our way from point A to point B via boat. But there was a time when that was uh, an essential part of what it meant to get around. Um, and so, yeah, water does have the sense of, of traveling and moving along some sort of passage, a passage in time um, from getting, getting ourselves somewhere. Um, it's really fitting the um uh, maybe uh maybe uh a bit, a bit of a, going a little bit off uh into into the left field but there's um there's one way of looking at the the sounding of the shofar right in the if we look in the torah the shofar sounded in a few different contexts um in the context of battle celebrations but also the shofar is um in sefer bimin bar uh is used to in uh to instruct the jewish people to travel it might be that the sound of the shofar is also connected with this notion of travel um, specifically, the that combination of the tikkia and the tura together indicates that uh, it's time for the for the encampment for for our for our encampment to start moving. Um, maybe a, another possible direction. All right, so let's let's look at some sources inside um, uh, and uh, and see where um where some where some rabbinic voices can uh, contribute to this thinking about what tashlich might be. Um, so I'm sharing the screen here, um, and um, but the sources are also available on the source sheet if you're following along there. So just to get us started, the, the notion of praying by the water uh, is actually um, kind of old. Um, historically, Jews have uh, prayed by the water uh, in, uh, in already from the Second Tell period. Um, we have record of uh, synagogues being built alongside the water. Um, we see this in Josephus, um, as, well as, uh, as well as in the New Testament, uh, where there's a uh, record, as you see here, of um, of synagogues being built at the seaside. There seems to have been some sort of tradition of building synagogues by the water. Um, we have some, some of this is even attested to in Tanakh. We see in the book of Ezra um, and, uh, that the Jews, uh, when they return to uh, build the second temple, uh, they uh, they have a, a prayer that happens by the Sha'ar Hamayim, by the water gate. Uh, and even in the, in some of the, the books of the Nevi'im, Yechezkel, Mishael, um, there are these visions of God they have upon the water. And so there's the notion of praying by the water may even predate what we think of as this particular ritual of Tashlich, um, this particular ritual on Rosh Hashanah of going with some bread and chucking it in the water. Um, the notion of going to the, seeing within the, the water, within the, the seashore, uh, a place that is worthy of prayer might actually have ancient roots uh, in the Jewish tradition. But then the question is, what meaning might that have? Um, and one of the, what's part of what's interesting about looking at the sources which we're going to see today, which are really you know, 15, 1600s and later, is that they're trying to talk about what meaning we might find in praying by the water. I don't think that they're they're just talking about tashlich, but at some point I think that the ideas that they're writing about when thinking about tashlich in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s, they're really building upon. What is what is likely some of the underlying thinking behind 
the ancient prayer by the water already from the second temple period. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to see how the ideas here might have ancient roots, even though they're only discussed uh, somewhat later in the, in the timeline. Um, we'll start with Rav Moshe Isserlis, better known as the Ramah, who's living in the 1500s. Um, the Ramah is best known for uh, his work, often either called the Mapa, the, ma the, the tablecloth, or even just the Ramah, or Hagahot Ramah, the glosses of the Ramah, uh, which is his um, glosses on Rav Yosef Karo Shulchan Aruch. Uh, Rav Yosef Karo uh, put together this sort of digest of halachic practice, but was heavily influenced by Sephardic thinking, uh, or the Sephardic tradition, and the Ramah adds his glosses, um, which are meant to introduce, by the way, Ashkenazim sometimes think differently. Um, but he wrote a few other works as well, including Torah Ta'ola. Torah Ta'ola is uh, a work that's meant to look sort of broadly at the the symbolism behind the worship that was done in the Beit Dutch in the temple, um, right? Going through all the various korbanot, the various sacrifices, and try to find some sort of symbolism or meaning to it. it there, there are some communities where there's a tradition to study the Torah Ta'ola um, in the lead up to Tisha B'Av, right? To find some sort of meaningful connection to the Beit Dutch. So in that context, he talks uh, about the offerings of Rosh Hashanah, the korbanot of Rosh Hashanah in the temple, and then he sort of takes a tangent to talk about Tashlich. And he offers us his account of what Tashlich is about. Source three. Umin hagshel Yisrael Torahu. V'mashal chim amayim v'omrim Tashlich in Sobyan. He says it's, this tradition of the Jewish people, this is a, a, a idea which you find uh, numerous times in the Ramah's writing, as well as others, that there's there's a great, there's there's Torah within the minhagim of the Jewish people, that even the Jewish people decide to do something on their own, they develop a, a practice, a custom, that there, it, it takes on the status of Torah, there's a meaning to it. And he explains as follows. It, it is not the case that the, the re revealing of the earth, and what he's imagining here, is that in the creation, as is described in the Torah, when the world was created, first, the earth was covered with water, right? the, the lower water and the upper waters were separated, and only on the third day of creation, God moves away some of the water so that there can be dry land. And so the dry land had to be revealed from under the water. So it says when that happened, when the water got out of the way to create the, the land upon which we live, it was not by, by accident. It wasn't unintentional. Rather, it was, the, it was the will of God. It was the will of God that there should be land, dry land on earth for us to live upon. Uh, the the Ramah is building off of some biblical language here, uh, two different psukim, but it's one if we go to the water to be reminded of the fact that God, in the act of creation, tells the water up to here. God says to the water, stop. Right, where it's building off this sort of um, almost um, almost mythic language, right, where the, the water had, was sort of covering over the earth, and God moves the water out of the way and tells the water, stay out of bed. Keep, keep to where you are, because there needs to be dry land upon which humans and other creatures can live. When we go to the water, we are witness to the greatness of the Creator. He continues, the second paragraph. It says the reason we're going to the water on Rosh Hashanah, it's not a cat to drop sins in, into the into the giant, you know, 
waste waste dump of the of the creek. Rather, we're going to remind ourselves of the creation of the world, the creation of the world which began with the water. And to remind ourselves that God is the, the monarch, the reigning monarch over all the earth. Regarding this, it says in that we say these sukim regarding casting our sins into the sea. Hold up. Here's the problem. The Ramah knows that we're all going to the water to pray. And he wants to say the reason you would go to the water is to be inspired by the creation. The problem is, once you open up your mahzor, you look at the words, it's very clear that we're talking about casting sins into the into, into the water. We say the psukim that we looked at last week, last week, cast their sins into the sea. That's even the name of the thing, tashlich. And the Ramah wants to make it about something else. He wants to make it about being reminded of creation. What's he going to do now? So he says that this notion of casting sins into the sea is really tied into this being reminded of the creation. He suggests as follows. Someone who takes the, the time of to, to meditate, to reflect upon the fact that the, the depths of the, of the water are, are evidence of the fact that the world was created willingly by God. That's what's going to lead you to have belief in the existence of God. And once you realize that there is a God who has created all the earth and is master of all the earth, that's going to lead you to, I guess, out of a feeling of awe towards God or reverence of God, you're going to feel bad for your sins and you'll regret it. And then, and then your sins will be forgiven. And this is how the sins end up in the sea. Meaning what the, what the Ramad does is he says, we're not, we're not taking our sins and putting them in the water. Our sins are removed from us. They are forgiven through the water. How does the water help? The water is meant to be an inspiration. The water inspires us. It reminds us of the creation. It reminds us of our place on this earth. It reminds us of the ultimate will of the creator the authority of the creator, who is the one who gave us the mitzvot, and that's going to lead us to repent. And so it's the water which leads to our sins being cast away. That's tashlich mitzvot Not casting our sins into the water, but casting our sins away thanks to the inspiration of the water. Okay, that's framing number one. It's a creative idea. It's a creative idea what the Ramah is offering here. The Ramah wants to say that if we're thinking about what Rosh Hashanah is, Rosh Hashanah is the day of creation. So definitely what we're doing Rosh Hashanah must be a creation ritual. And it's really striking that we don't, we don't have so many of those in, in Jewish practice. If you think about it, you know, Shabbat is meant to sort of broadly remind us of creation, though, you know, we all we do on Shabbat is we stop. Or we're not looking at a part of the created world. Other than that, we don't have so many rituals that are meant to direct our attention towards the creation, towards the earth. Ramah says it must be that's what we're doing in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, we're meant to go to the water as an opportunity to reflect upon the earth, to reflect upon the creation and the creator. All right. That's for number Excuse me. Can I ask you yes. a question? Please. So that would be like the idea of inspiring awe. I think so. I think so. Yeah, that, that's something about going to the water. And again, this is, this is why it probably is more the right calls to, I don't know, 
don't say Tashlech had a bucket, maybe not even a little, little creek, but uh, I think I suspect the Ramah is imagining, well, truth is the Ramah was in Krakow, so he wasn't by a, by a particularly large lake or ocean, but even so, perhaps that's what he's imagining, maybe at least a, a mighty river, to say the least, um, that to be, to be inspired by this encounter with the created world that should direct us towards the creator. That reminds me of Malchiot. Mm, absolutely. This is a this is a Malchiot take on Tashlich. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that framing. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, it ties in nicely. Um, there are people. Some people have the tradition of studying um, Maimonides Rambam's Hilchot Shuva, the laws of repentance, um, leading up to during this time of year. Rambam in the last chapter talks about how what's supposed to lead our way towards a relationship with God is we're supposed to look upon the creative world, look upon nature, be amazed by it, and that leads us to a sense of reverence towards God. The Ramah says that general idea, that that di general direction towards finding God, that's what Tashtich is. This is all about Malchuyot, finding your way to the Malch. All right, let's try framing number two, which is, um, uh, I would say in the in the same direction, but um, but a, a different kind of framing. Just a minute here. The here we go. Share screen, and we're back. Rav Shlomo Kluger, uh, living a little bit later than the Rama, um, an interesting halachic writer, but we won't uh, we won't delve too far into his biography. But now we're already into the um, he's in the late 17, early 1800s. Um, much of the 1800s. Um, so his writing is, again, presumably the mid-19th century. Rav Kluger has another suggestion, also in, within the Malchuyot framing. He calls our attention to the fact that if we open up Sefer Melachim, again, we're thinking about, this is a day about, about Melucha, right? One of, the, one of the key framings of our liturgy, um, our, our language around Rosh Hashanah, is that God is a king, and God is being crowned, or some sort of coronation that happens. Now, what do coronations look like? Uh, certainly, uh, uh, I, I don't know the ages of everyone here, but um, uh, I'm I, the first coronation uh, in the UK that I was alive for, uh, I was not around for Elizabeth II in, uh, what was that, 1952? Um, but, uh, but the most recent coronation for King Charles, um, we really have the opportunity to see, like, what does a coronation look like? Um, uh, and so what, what kind of pieces are involved when you crown a king? So Shlomo Kluger says, well, let's look at Tanakh. In the Tanakh, there's an answer to that question. Um, and we can see the way that um, at the beginning of Melachim Aleph, right, which is the right, the, the reign of um, King David, of David, sort of carries us through the end of Sefer Shmuel and um, just carries over into the beginning of Melachim Aleph. Melachim Aleph, first kings, is already the, starts with the very end of um, David's life. And there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a crisis of who exactly is going to take over um, uh, David's throne. And here we have this, this description. After there's a, there's a back and forth with um, Bathsheba, with uh, with Navi, some of the characters there in Malachim. Take a look at source five. Vayomer HaMelech. This is uh, King David. Vayomer HaMelech lahem. Kui machemet Adonichem. Take with you the the servants of of your master, um, namely myself. Vir kavtemet Shlomo bini. Ready? Now David is appointing Shlomo. He's saying that Shlomo should be crowned king. So take Shlomo, my son, on my, I believe that's a horse, on a mule, sorry. Take Shlomo to the Gihon River, to the Gihon stream. It's in the general Jerusalem area. 
Um, you can still uh, check it out. Not too much water there, but it's around. And there, Sadoka Kohen, um, Zadok the priest, a uh, name we might remember from uh, Charles's coronation, um, and uh, and Natanavi, the two of them shall uh, anoint Shlomo as king over the Jewish people, over the, the people of Israel. Utkatema Shofar, sound the, the Shofar, sound the horn. And declare, long live King Solomon. So first, it should be striking to us that, uh, as, as, as we mentioned previously the, um, in the side note, that the sounding of the shofar has a few different possible meanings in the Tanakh, and it's a good question what its meaning is on our, on our observance of shofar blowing on Rosh Hashanah. And one possibility is that the sounding of the shofar is associated with coronation, um, at the, going back to Charles, at the, right, um, right the, the, I believe it was the day after um, Queen Elizabeth passed. Um, the first announcement of uh, of Charles's reign began with the formal announcement, the formal declaration, which began with the trumpeting of trumpets. Right? That's how you get people's attention about a major announcement. Um, so that's the the shofar sounding. But where does it happen? The coronation happens at the water. You have to go down to the Gihon River, and this is uh, picked up on, upon in the in the Gemara. Um, really in the Tosefta and repeated again in the in the Talmud, that coronations are meant to happen by the water. When kings are coronated, coronated in the Jewish tradition, um, we don't do it too often these days, uh, but were it to happen, a coronation is meant to happen by the water, um, traditionally by the Gichon or by the Shiloh. So Rav Shalom Kluger says, maybe that's what Tashvin is about. Because right? there's only one other ritual when the Jewish people travel their way down to the water and do something by the water when you crown a king. So now take a look at source six. Ulufiyaniudati, says Rosh Kluger, nirelitain tam chadash. There's a new uh, idea, a new reasoning I can offer for what Tashlich might really be about. As, as along the lines of what is stated by our sages, by Chazal, um, in the Tosefta and Sanhedrin, again repeated in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, that kings are meant to be anointed by a spring or by a stream so that their uh, kingdom, that sort of the rain should flow, should continue like a, like a, like a running stream. Right? This again touches on, um, I forgot who said it, but the, the notion of uh, experiencing the water, especially if it's maybe a, a stream, a brook, this notion of continuity. And we wish that upon the king who's now being um, who's now being crowned. And for that reason, we go to the water. Um, there's something very telling about that, where the king's reign is meant to be, in some ways, um, it gives us a sense of of, of uh, being above time, right? An, an ongoing chain of um, of a, a, a dynasty. And yet also, the king's reign is, by definition, going to be, you know, ended at some point. But there's this. There's this aspiration that the reign should last forever, right? As as when the when a, the king is coronated, you say, "Long live the king." Or here in Melachim, "Long may may King Solomon live," right? So we're we're hoping for a long reign, perhaps because that allows for political stability, and that is some of the meaning behind going to the water for the coronation. So he goes on to say, So when Rosh Hashanah comes around. And we too are accepting the responsibility of worshiping God upon us. 
על כן הולכים למעיין, להתפלל שיהיה נמשך מלכותו של הקדוש ברוך הוא עלינו כמעיין ולא יפסוק. We're going to the, the stream to pray that God's reign upon us should continue, should last forever. Now, I suppose we're not saying that we're praying that God lasts forever. That's, uh, that's kind of, you know, a, a built-in feature to God. But it sounds like what he's trying to do with the language is saying we're not praying that the king should last. We're, we're uh, praying that the reign should last. The reign lasting means that we need to be loyal to the king. We're praying that to God that we should succeed in continuing to be loyal to the king such that the king's reign shall continue. And so maybe the frame of Atashi is really this. We're tying in, not per se, to the creation, like the Ramah says, we're tying into the, the tradition of coronation. And that is, that's what this water prayer is about. We're experiencing the crowning of a king. All right. That was framing number two. Now let's take a look at number three. This one is not really about Tashlich, but when I first saw it, I wondered whether it's about Tashlich. So it's going to be a, a partnership between Rav Eliyahu Shik, um, author of the commentary in Eliyahu, and me. Rav Eliyahu Shik lives in the 1800s, and his work in Eliyahu is a commentary on the In Yaakov. The In Yaakov, um, uh, the Talmud is a funny book because um, it's not really, um, it's hard to pinpoint the genre of the Talmud. The Talmud has some legal discussions, some derivations from verses on, in Tanakh, then there's some stories, some Midrashim, a couple recipes here and there, and so it just, it's it's hard to sort of piece out what the Talmud is. Um, and there are, in over the course of history, there have been two um, major attempts to slice up the Talmud for only the bits we want. One is the work of the, the Riff, of Yitzhak Al-Fasi in the 1000s, where he just cut out all of the stories, cut out all of the all the midrashim, just left us with the clear halachic legal conclusions. He just that's the only part of the Talmud he was interested in, and he cut out the rest. The opposite was done some a number of years later, I think in the 1600s, a, a work called the Eniyakov. The Eniyakov is all of the stories, midrashim, you know, recipes for solving, getting rid of demons, that kind of stuff. And none of the halachic legal material. Just cut all of that. If I suspect that if you took the riff and and the Yaakov and put them together, you'd more or less have the whole time. There's just two different heads. The Eniyahu is a commentary on the Yaakov. so it's a commentary on um, stories that appear in the Talmud. Interestingly, the Eniyahu also um, the Eniyakov, um covers not only the midrashim, the stories, the agadot from the Babylonian Talmud, from the Bavli, but also covers the Yerushalmi. Interesting choice on the part of the, the author. And so the Ein Eliyahu um, comments on this as well. So we're going to look at a story from the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Ein Eliyahu's treatment of that story. And though it's not directly about Tashlich, I think, if you're asking, that Tashlich is for sure in the background, or at least we can find some meaning of Tashlich within the story. So here we are in Masechet Kuaim. At the end of Masechet Kuaim in the Yerushalmi, there are all these stories about rabbis approaching their own death. It, it's it's really by chance. The Mishnah there in Kilayim makes a passing mention um, in the context of talking about Sha'anis, the prohibition on mixing wool and linen in garments, um, makes mention of um, makes mention of uh, of takrichin, of shrouds. And from there, the Yerushalmi takes the opportunity to discuss all these stories of rabbis who are approaching their own death. And we have a story about Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir hava idzmich le'i 
Alirintana was approaching his own death in a place called Asia. Um, some suggest that's a place called Asos, which is um, a little bit closer to uh, to uh, to Eretz Israel. Obviously, it might really mean Asia, where right? that's what Asia means in contemporary Hebrew. But it's certainly not in the Holy Land. Amar He said he sends a messenger. Tell the people of the land of Israel, your Messiah is coming. I'm on my way. What he means by this? Great question. Not what we're going to unpack for now. But he seems to have some sort of hope that he's going to make his way to Israel. Seemingly that his that his remains, even after he passes away, will be brought to the land of Israel. Right? This is uh, through our uh, literature. There's this notion that there's a, a great value to being buried in the land of Israel. So it sounds like that's what he wants. Why he refers to himself as a Messiah? Anyone's best guess. Um, even the most of the commentators, even the academic work, all says no one knows what he was thinking. All right. But he says that his game plan is to be brought to the land of Israel, and yet, Afiluchin, even though, even so, Amarlon, he then said, Yehevona Arsi al Yama, place my beer, place my coffin on the seascape, on the on the seashore. As it says, For God founded the, the earth upon the seas and based it on the rivers. Now, the funny thing about studying the Yerushalmi generally is that the manuscripts we have available are not fantastic. And so it's often there are often textual errors in the Yerushalmi. It's possible that that verse is actually part of the next passage. It's a little bit hard to work through exactly what is happening here in the text. Um, but it seems like what happens is our mayor originally planned to have his coffin brought to the land of Israel. And then he says, you know what? Just bring it to the sea. Unclear if he means it to be buried at sea or to be placed next to the sea on his way to Israel. But for some reason, he, during the process of his own um, burial, he wants his coffin to be by the seashore. And the reason, it seems, is because there's some connection to the fact that God created the world upon the waters, as it is described in Tehillim, in Psalms, in this verse, and as it is described in Sacred Breshi. So the Eliyahu tries to figure out what, what does Ramir want? Why does it matter to him to have his coffin brought to the sea? And explains as follows. Near, in source 8. Near Eli Leva'er Kavanat Ha'inyan. It looks to me, I think we should explain it along the, as follows. All things must return to the place from which they have come. The name of he in the ellipses he brings some other examples of midrashim of those who return from where they come. For example, Yosef, or the biblical character Joseph, um, uh, passed through Shechem um, earlier in his life, and he has his bones returned to, to Shechem. Um, there's some you know, Adam Rishon. There's a midrash that suggests that he was buried in the place where the, the that original earth ground was taken to form him. So similarly, that he says the idea is things are meant to return to the place from which they came from. The name of Arba Sefer Yitzirah, it's stated in Sefer Yitzirah, one of the early works of Kabbalah. Everything was created from the water. Right, this is one way of, it's not so clear that's the right way to read Breshit, but there's this notion uh, that it certainly emerges from some of our traditional texts that the creation starts from the water. And 
Therefore, Mir asks to be buried by the water on the seashore. He wants to be returned to the place from which he comes, for all things, for all creation, comes from the water. When I first saw this in Eliyahu, it reminded me there's um there's a there's a thing about um there's a certain kind of turtle. Uh, I'm embarrassed that I don't uh, I don't remember the the particular subspecies, but um there's a particular kind of turtle. The lapidos. The goblos like turtles. The tortoises. And they go back to where they. Were. Yeah, there's this thing that where that the uh, I get thank you from the from the Galapagos. And these turtles they the they where they they lay eggs like on the on the beach uh, by the water. When the turtles are born, they I don't know make their they make their way into the water, swim around, go live their lives. When it's time for them to birth, you know the at the birthing season, the turtles return to the same uh, coast where they were born to give birth the next time around. And there's something about the um, interesting research on how they figure out where to go. They just like, uh, they can like tap into like magnet, the magnetic field or something, whatever. But um, point being, there's something about this desire to go home. This sense that we're meant to go to the place where we're from. Again, the alien I was not talking about Tashlik, but I wonder if maybe that's also part of what this water ritual might be, especially in Rosh Hashanah, right? Going back to the Ramah, Right, our first framing, the Ramah who says that Tashlich is really all about um, witnessing the creation. Maybe it's not just about being wowed by all that God has made, but there's something about our trying to reconnect ourselves with the creation. Right, the We say that, that Rosh Hashanah is Zikharon Yom a commemoration, a reminder of the beginning of time, the beginning of our own time, the beginning of all of time. And so we want to go back to where it started. We don't want to have some sense that we're we're touching base at home, right? This might maybe is le less of a malchuyot framing and more of a zichronot framing. When we think about memory, when we think about taking stock of ourselves and our place in the world, so we want to go back to where we're from. And in a in a deep sense, where we come from is the water. And when we say that, we, that where we come from is the water, what we mean by that is something like we we want to take the, the opportunity in Rosh Hashanah to appreciate that we are a part of creation. We tend to spend our lives, spend our days over the course of the year thinking about our personal stories, our own aspirations, maybe our family, our community. And we have this moment on Rosh Hashanah to remember that we are earthlings. We're just of earth. And like the rest of the earth, we came out of the muck of the, of the water. And we're all kind of sharing that story together. So again, it's creation, but a, a more personal relationship with the creation. That, I think, is framing number three that we can offer for this water prayer of Tashlich. Again, we saw framing number one, Tashlich as being witness to the greatness of creation. Our second, that is connected to the, the history, the, the notion of coronation in the Jewish tradition, um, and that sense of the the, the, ongo the the timelessness, the eternity of the running stream. And here, number three, um, that we're returning home. We're connecting to our own place within the creation. Um, it's very fitting that on the night of Rosh Hashanah, um, in both Ashkenazi and Sephardic traditions, um, following the Amidah, we recite chapter 24 of Tehillim, um, which cites this verse, God has formed the world upon the water. And perhaps to be mindful of during Tashlich. That's framing number three. We have one more. We've got one more to look at um, to sort of hopefully offer us uh, something of a, a full picture of uh, what Tashlich might be um, in a slightly, a slightly different sort of direction. Um, the the four so far what we've looked at is 
Tasha sort of tying us to um, some sort of, e either tying us to something way, way far in the past, like creation, or maybe something that's sort of halfway through in the past, the coronation of kings. But there's another possibility that maybe there's something that's happening um, in our relationship with the, the water, like the experience of the, like the physical the physical object water. And there's some, there's some reason why I want to be near not, say, a body of water, a stream or an ocean, but just be by some water. Let's think, let's, we'll, we'll see together what, what, what we have in mind. So here we go. We're up to framing number four, right, in source none. I'll share the screen again. The Ramchal, Rosh Hashanah Mutato, um, so again, we're in the 1700s. Uh, in his Ma'amar Chochmah, um, which is a, a, a work commenting on the writing of the, of the Arizal, um, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, um, key figure in the development of Kabbalah, um, he writes as follows. In his, he, he's talking here about Tashlik um, for context. He says, right? He says, as a general framing, it is appropriate to make use of the elements of the world in our worship of the divine. Right? When we think about how we should worship Hashem, we should look around us and see, look at the look at the plants around us and look at our, our natural environment and see how can we incorporate that into our religious experience. He says, we're to look around nature and see how can we pick up on, on hints from, from the, the world around us that might direct us towards some sort of uh, deeper wisdom. Al-Kain, therefore, he says, we go to the water. Again, he's talking about Tashlich on Rosh Hashanah. We're meant to go to the water. When you go to the water, what you are struck by is the notion that if you were to be inside the water, you would get drenched in water. He says this is meant to call our attention to what God does in a sort of metaphysical way. When we sin and we approach God and ask for forgiveness, God takes us like a rag and launders us, puts us into the laundry machine, and scrubs out the sins so that there's no lasting stain. And this is what the, the prophet has in mind in writing, cast their sins into the depths. So again, in the, the Ramchal also has this language of Tashlik. There's no getting around the, this verse, throw the sins in the sea. But he says, we're not just taking the sins and throwing them in the sea, right? Imagine, right? In, in, traditionally, people have, you know, some bread in their pockets, let's say. And so you you have your garments in your, that's you. You have some sins, that's the crumbs. And you go to the water, you just drop the crumbs in the sea. Like a dumpster. Ramachal says the, the water is not the dumpster. The water is the laundry machine. And we have to go all the way in and get laundered out. So that we can come out clean. Water is this meant to lead us to think about cleanliness and what it would be like to be clean, to have all that stuff sort of washed away. Now, there's something really striking, especially if you go to say like the ocean. You just see like the abundance of water. 
right? It's all sort of there's nothing, you know, um, I mean, that just seeing that monochrome, just like lots and lots of blue. And the sense that you could have all this stuff, all the things that you've accrued, just kind of washed away into the water. Um, I think I think that's how he's imagining what Tashlik might mean. And that what he finds meaning in encountering the water in advance of Rosh Hashanah is something like, oh, I'm sorry, on Rosh Hashanah in advance of the coming year, is to be, have all those sins washed away. We have some of that language in the Machler also about uh, wishing that God could um, could whiten us, um, could uh, that God can rinse away our sins, um, and you see that that's what Tashlik is. Now, what's striking is that I don't I don't know that the Ramchal is um, building upon this, but it's possible that the Ramchal knows, and this is already a, a a teaser for next week, that in some communities the way that Tashlik was observed was by going into the water, that people would go into the water and wash themselves off in the water. And so it could be that that's something that he's building upon. Um, and we'll have to discuss next week why it might be that people were uh, were rinsing around bathing in the water as part of Tashlich, that they thought that, that that would help them get the sins off. Um, we'll have to look at that next time. Um, but it seems like that's at least some of what the Ramchal has in mind. So what we've seen so far are these four framings of how we might think about the meaning of taking time on Rosh Hashanah to pray by the water. Whether that has to do with the, the rinsing, being amazed by creation, thinking about coronation and eternity, thinking about coming back home and reconnecting with the earth upon which we live. It shouldn't surprise us that Tashlik really opens itself up to all these different kinds of reinterpretation. And I, I'd like to think that Tashlik is not only meaningful in any one of these ways, but it invites us to think about what other kinds of rituals we can reimagine, offer new framings for. Um, there are, I, I wanted to look at traditional sources, you know, in the context of this year, but um, in contemporary Jewish uh, Jewish practice, uh, there's all sorts of uh, new age approaches to Tashlich about, you know, being in the water and throwing, a, casting away on things that, you know, are, are troubling us. They're, there are a lot, a lot of attempts to re reimagine Tashlich. And it really, I think, is a, uh, an invitation to think about what other kinds of rituals we can reimagine. Um, I think as we approach Rosh Hashanah, which is really, uh, really just around the corner at this point, um, it's worth thinking about which, of the, which, if any, of these framings uh, might speak to us when we say Tashlich. Um, uh, traditionally, Tashlich is said on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, though some people um, delay to the second day. Um, when the first day is on Shabbat. Um, so whatever it is that you find yourself saying Tashlich, um, certainly if you're not the sort of person who uh, has a vision of casting bread into the water, though even if you are, it's worth thinking about what these framings might offer for us, um, different kinds of spiritual approaches to what Tashlich can, can, can bring about um, at, this, uh, at this juncture as we start off the new year. Um, I'll pause for any, uh, any thoughts, feelings, reflections uh, before we... Uh, get ourselves uh, uh, oriented for uh, for the final class. You know, I think Tashlik is very, um, I said, pleasant. We walk to the East River, you look at the river if it's a nice day. But articulating, when we throw our sins, I mean, we articulate, or my husband and I do, 
some of the things that were done wrong and what we hope to change. And just the fact that you're kind of, okay, you're standing there and you're admitting things that you know need work on. It's it's really, I would never give up that. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I, seriously, it's, uh, it's more than just fun. It's, yeah, it's absolutely. Really I, I think beautiful. what, so last week we talked about this, some of the framing of the throwing sins into the sea and next week we'll uh, uh, get get back at it. But I think what's really interesting is that one part of Tashlich is the sins in the water. It's like the taking all our stuff and casting it in. But I hope that what we were able to highlight today is that there are other ways of looking at what the experience of Tashlich might be. There's other sorts of symbolism and meaning we might find in approaching the water and taking that as a, a place for reflection, meditation um, on Rosh Hashanah. Um, but when we come back next week, Bezrat Hashem, um, it will be it will be awkward in a sense to have a class on Tashlik when many many people do Tashlik on Rosh Hashanah. Um, uh, some of this is just the coincidences of how the schedule worked out, but there's a little bit more to it, which is that um, Tashlik actually has a relationship with Yom Kippur, um, and that's because what I'm hoping that we'll do next time is um, we're going to go back to some of the we last time we looked at the the, the original text the, the text of Tashlik right this. Verses from the from the from the Tanakh. So we looked at some new framings, but we still have to find where do the rabbis actually talk about first talk about Tashlik. When does it get introduced into um, rabbinic writing, which is different from when it gets introduced into Jewish practice? And we'll see that Tashlik and the casting of sins has a funny relationship with a friend of ours named Satan. There's a funny relationship between Tashlik and the Satan mm-hmm. um, in our uh, if we do some historical digging. And the truth is, Satan doesn't only play a play a role in the story of Tashlich, but Satan has a, a, a creeps in within Rosh Hashanah and into our Yom Kippur liturgy as well. And so we'll have the opportunity um, when we come back next week. Um, again, for many people, it might even be post Tashlich, but what we'll be looking at is really connected to um, this broader theme of where the Satan um, fits into the into the this story of the the High Holidays. Um, for the record. One of the early, and we'll discuss this next week, one of the earliest records of Tashlich is actually a, a ritual described by Rashi, which is a combo of Tashlich and Kaparot at the same time. There might have originally been one ritual. And so in anticipation of Yom Kippur and Kaparot, really fitting to look at that together um, and focusing on how Tashlich might be about um, crisis. Tashlich might be about facing our fears, facing our various demons. And so we'll, uh, we'll have some time to explore those demons together. We come back next week. So I'm, I'm really grateful to everyone for being here with us tonight. I'm wishing you all you. Um, a meaningful tashlich, um, uh, however it is that you practice, whenever you do so, um, and really a, a wonderful start to the year. Uh, looking forward to hopefully seeing you in another week's time for some more Torah. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you Matthew, so much. And thank you so much to uh, yeah. everyone else who joined us today. Um, thanks for being part of our learning community, uh, this Halula Noise. Um, uh, just uh, for those of you who have the time today and want to keep learning with Drisha, our Luzman classes continue tonight uh, with Why Are You Sleeping? Uh, Piyutim of Awakening uh, today, Amin Noraim, taught by Rabbanit Victoria Satin at 8 p.m. Eastern. So hope to see you there. And we always have uh, more classes scheduled. Uh, we have many more in this Luzman. You can learn more and register at uh, 5783.drisha.org slash and hope to see you soon. Thank you again, Rav Matthew, and thank you again, everyone else. And Shana Tova. Shana Tova, Metuka. <laughs>